The Apostle Paul has been spending his time at the end of this letter to the Corinthians in dealing with a concern that they have concerning resurrection. It is a discussion that we looked at last week as well that there is often a question that people have whether there is something after death. Will we be raised from the dead? Is there life after death? And Paul has been answering that question from 1 Corinthians 15 and from verse 12 to verse 19 he described the problems that exist if there is no resurrection of the dead. And his argument was very simple. If there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no life after death for us, then Christ has not been raised. That is the whole purpose of His coming and His dying and raising is to be able to give us life so that there would be life after this world that we would continue to live with God and then he went on to say that if Christ is not raised then we are still in our sins our faith is futile our preaching is vain the dead are perished and we are to be most pitied of all people and now he comes to verse 20 and he says but in fact Christ has been raised That is the great truth. That is the great reality. He has been raised and he acts now as a first fruits. And so Paul is now going to continue to teach us why we must believe in the resurrection of the dead. And he's going to tell us since Christ has been raised, then these certain aspects must be true. These certain things must surely then take place. Verse 20, he begins that by saying Christ is the first fruits. He is the leader in these things. He has gone before us as the beginning point, as a first fruits of a harvest. Since He died and was raised, then clearly when we die, we will be raised as well. Notice that in verse 21 as He explains that, He says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so he makes the simple point that physical death is inevitable because of the sin of Adam. All of us are going to die physically. All of us are going to be put in the grave. However, physical resurrection has come because of Christ's act. And notice the parallel that is there. Just as we are all in Adam, and that would mean we're all human, So we all die. But those who are in Christ, he says, are going to be made alive. There is a correcting that is going on that Christ now is reversing the curse of sin and is going to now bring life to raise us from the dead. As he says in verse 21 and verse 22, we will be made alive. And I'd like for us to consider that while the language sounds similar to Romans chapter 5, where over there the Apostle Paul is talking about spiritual death and spiritual life, remember the Apostle Paul tells us that because all sin, that's why we are all separated from God, but Christ has come so that now He can give us life, that we can be reconciled to God, that His act of grace is greater than our condemnation. But that's not the argument that is being presented here. It cannot be referring to spiritual death and spiritual life, though he uses the same parallel of 
in Adam all die, so in Christ will be made alive. Our context has been in the physical sense. He's talking about life after death. And consider the implication of Christ being the first fruits in this point that he's making. The point is not for us to say, well, uh, Jesus then suffered spiritual death and then spiritual life. And so therefore we have suffered spiritual death and we will suffer spiritual life. He's not a first fruits in that. Uh, he did not die spiritually. Uh, that means separation from God. That never, ever, ever, ever happened. Separation from God is a consequence of sin. And Jesus never sinned. So the argument is not to speak of him as a first fruits in a spiritual sense. The connection is this Jesus died physically. And then he conquers death in his physical resurrection. And that makes him a first fruits for all those who are in him. That though we die physically, we will be raised. And that is the great reversal that is being described. And I do think it is interesting to consider then that what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish is two aspects. It deals with our spiritual death, as Paul wrote to the Romans. But it also deals with physical death and speaks to the life that we are going to have in Christ, that we will be raised with certainty. And so therefore, as all still will physically die, those who are in Christ are being made alive. We will be raised from the dead. And there is no getting around that great, wonderful thing that though we die and everyone must experience it, If we are in Christ, there is great hope. And that's what he wants these Corinthians to understand. How can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Jesus died and was raised so that we would also be raised. He is the first fruits of that which is to come. Now notice what now the Apostle Paul does is he speaks of now the order of things. As verse 23 he begins, but each in his own order. He now wants to describe really kind of the timeline of how this is all going to happen. The order of how the resurrection is going to occur. He begins of course with Christ again reminding us in verse 23 Christ the first fruits. He has already accomplished it. Jesus has already died and has risen from the dead. He is the first of this never to die again. Then he says for us that will happen as well. For those who belong in Christ or belong to Christ, we will be raised at his coming. And so here is two great hopes. He's coming back. And when he comes back, then there is going to be the resurrection of those who belong to Jesus. Those who belong to Him, then that hope is going to be realized. And so He gives us a great picture then of this is how it is all going to go. Our resurrection is not immediate, but in His coming, when He returns, then we will be raised. Then we will have this great, wonderful reunion as we will be caught up with Him and together be with the Lord forever, as 1 Thessalonians 4 describes. And then he gives a little bit more to the timeline. When that happens, when he comes, and we who belong to him are raised, verse 24 says, that's the end. Then comes the end. Because that's what this has all been about. The redemption of God's people. 
And so Christ will return and those who belong to Him, they will be raised. Then comes the end, verse 24. And notice the picture that is given here. And this is integral to why he, there must be a resurrection. Notice his explanation. He says in verse 24, when He, that's speaking of Christ, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule, and every authority and every power. There is a picture that Christ is on the throne, that He is reigning and He is now subjugating all of creation in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm, whether it be in the heavenly places or in earth itself. Christ is on the throne. He is reigning and all things are being put under His feet. That's what... Uh, the Apostle Peter made the point in Acts chapter 2 as he gives that first sermon that Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. He has sat down at the right hand of God. That means He has the power. That means He is reigning. That means He's on the throne. And that's what Daniel chapter 7 prophesied would happen where He'd be given dominion and authority and a kingdom and all rule and all glory and honor be given to Him. Christ rules now. And it tells us that He will continue to rule until every single enemy is put under His feet. Till every single enemy bows the knee in subjection or is destroyed. That is the picture that Christ rules. This is exactly what the prophet said was going to happen. This is not unusual language. Psalm 110. And in verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Here's the picture of what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to reign and subjugate the enemies. He's going to put them under His feet. And we see that process happening in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. He raises from the dead, shows His authority over all things by being able to raise from the dead. Sits down at the right hand of God and now rules over all of creation. And the great picture is why this is important is because verse 26, the last enemy to be dealt with is death. Christ is subjugating all the enemies, putting all things under His feet. He is ruling over all creation and continues to subjugate peoples and nations. All creation must bow the knee to Him. And the great hope that he concludes with is if he is subjugating all things, guess what that includes? It includes death as well. The power of death is being dealt with by Christ. He is going to conquer death as well. So the picture then, I believe, looks like this and what he's trying to accomplish in the ears and the minds and the hearts of the Corinthian Christians. We know that we will be raised from the dead because Christ has been raised from the dead. He has taken His place at the right hand of God and received the kingdom. And He now rules in that kingdom. He rules over all things. And He is destroying and subjugating every enemy. And He is destroying and subjugating the great enemy of humanity, death 
itself. Death is going to be destroyed. And that's why those who are in Christ can have hope. Because Christ is demolishing death. He is going to put that under His feet as well. And the power of Him ruling over death is seen in the fact that He was dead for three days and then rose from the dead. That's where the power lies. That's why we know we will be raised because He rose from the dead. And that's why the Apostle Paul has put these two things together and says they cannot be broken. If Jesus was raised from the dead, we must be raised from the dead. There's no alternative. You can't separate them apart. No one can believe that Christ rose from the dead and then be uncertain about our resurrection. They cannot be separated. To believe in Jesus, to believe in His life, to believe in His sacrifice, to believe in His death, and to believe in His resurrection is to believe that all who belong to Him will also be raised because He has conquered death. That changes everything. The radical reversal of the great enemy, how wonderful it is to recognize that it changes how you live because now death is not the great enemy to us anymore. Now death is not something to fear. Now life is not lived as if I need to be concerned because if I die, that's going to be the end and what will happen next? Now this life is recognized as just being a temporary time until we are raised from the dead and get to go home and be with God. Now this is just a temporary life. Now we can say with great confidence this world is not our home. That our citizenship is not in this world. And that we are looking forward to a day that we get to go home and be with God and death is not to be feared for Christ has been victorious over it. That is the hope of the Christian life. And Paul now says there are three things we do because of that hope. Because Christ has conquered death, there are three things that we do. And that's from verses 29 to 34. What he does in this section can be a tad complicated. I would definitely say great complication in some of the words that are here. But he speaks of two negatives and one positive here as he asks these questions. If there's not a resurrection of the dead, if Christ has not been raised and we do not live in the hope that death has been dealt with and we will be raised, then why are we doing the things that we are doing? And that's why he's going to point out three things to observe that clearly Christians will do because Jesus has conquered death. Number one is baptism in verse 29. Notice verse 29. Otherwise, what will what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This verse has been used for all kinds of things, as you're probably well aware. It's probably been, but I've read a couple of commentators say, about 200 interpretations of what this means. And there's absolutely some complicated wording as the way that he says this. But I think the point is really quite simple that everybody typically agrees with is, why are people being baptized if the dead stay dead? Don't you know what baptism means? Don't you know what that accomplishes? Don't you know what is being said? 
I like how God's words translation kind of gets at the idea if the dead can't come back to life, why do people get baptized as if they can come back to life? This is the heart of what he's dealing with. Why are they being baptized? Why would you Christians, remember Paul doesn't baptize the Corinthians, he says, I'm glad I didn't do that. Why are some of them, why are they baptizing these people? Why would you do that? Why would I baptize you if we don't raise? Is essentially the idea. What's the point? What is the meaning of it? Baptism is a raising of our hope of the resurrection. In baptism, I do not hold you underwater and drown you. There is meaning of you coming up out of the water. It is resurrection that is being pictured here. You are being brought to life. And that is exactly what he argues as the Apostle Paul writes that in Romans chapter 6. If we have been united with Him in a death like His. What's he been talking about? Baptism. If we have been united in a death like His. Listen to what it means. We will certainly... Be united with Him in a resurrection like His. This is the symbol of baptism. Which makes me stand on my head and say, I can't believe how many Christian groups deny the importance and power of baptism. Because baptism symbolizes something immense. It symbolizes your new life. It means you're going to be raised. That's what you're putting your faith in. That's what you are declaring to God. I am trusting you to take away my sins so that when I come out of the water, not only am I forgiven, but it means I'm going to live with you that you're going to raise me up just as you were raised from the dead as well. Paul says, why are we baptizing if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? What are they doing? It doesn't make any sense. You don't baptize to stay dead. Baptism is the hope of resurrection. It compels us to come to the waters of baptism because we want to be united with Him. For just as He died and was raised from the dead, we symbolically die in the water of baptism and come up to the hope of resurrection. And so the first picture, he says, is the hope of the resurrection drives to baptism. It drives to it. If we don't believe in life after death, then why were you baptized? What were you thinking when you went under the water? It doesn't make any sense. It is grounded on the hope of resurrection. Number 2, verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The second thing that he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why are we sacrificing our lives? Paul can be very clear about that. Why is my life in danger every hour? Why is my life under mortal threat on a regular basis? Consider the life of the apostles. Consider the preachers and teachers and Christians of the first, second, third centuries as they're being put to the death. Paul is saying, why would we do that if there is not hope of the resurrection? If the dead are not raised, what are we doing? What he says there in verse 32, living a sacrificial Christian life, being willing to go to the death for the cause of Christ. 
makes no sense if the dead stay dead. We are willing to give our bodies and forfeit our lives for the cause of Christ because of the hope of the resurrection. This becomes the motivation of why I will sacrifice, why I will give up my comforts and conveniences and joys and life of ease. It is why I will give myself over to the cause of Christ. It is why I will die in the face of persecution. We do that because there is resurrection. And so threaten me, take my life, it doesn't matter because I'm just going home to be with God if you do it anyway. And that's what the Apostle Paul is arguing. Why would we live the way that we live and face the dangers and face death and go all over the earth preaching this good news if the dead stay dead? It doesn't make any sense. What it means for us in a changed life is that we don't live to preserve our lives. I hope you'll think about that for just a minute. Our life is not about trying to keep it alive as long as we can here. That's not the purpose. Paul just argued it. We're facing death every day. If he didn't want to face death every day, he should have moved really, really far away. He needed to quit engaging the Jews. He needed to quit going up to the persecutors. He needed to quit getting imprisoned. Because that's not what the life is about. The Christian life is not trying to preserve your life. Listen to Jesus. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Notice the total reorienting of how we look at life now. Life is not about now and preserving my life as long as I can is not what the goal is. The goal is to give my life to the kingdom of God, to let my body be in use to his service, because then it doesn't matter what happens, he'll raise it up. And so I don't care if I lose my life early for Christ, because he's made a promise if I give it, he'll save it. If I give my life to him, he'll save it. That's the hope that we live in. If the dead are raised, then it changes everything about how I look at my life today. And it's not about its preservation now. It is all about giving it over to Christ and all that He needs and all that He has. I will give my mind. I will give my soul. I will give my thoughts, emotions, and body. I will give it all so that Christ may be magnified and glorified in me. That's how we live because of the resurrection. Number three, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Final point. The first two were negatives. Why are we doing what we're doing if there's no resurrection? Here's the positive one. Since there is the resurrection of the dead, we must live holy lives. This is what we are called to do. Since we know that we will be raised, God has called us then to holy living. And notice how he describes it in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now that verse has been used for all kinds of stuff, right? Let's hold it in its context here and see what he means by that. Consider what's going on at that time. He's telling them, you're listening to these people who are teaching something false about the resurrection. 
They're distorting your mind. They are teaching you false doctrine, saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. You keep listening to that. That gives you the wrong behavior. It is going to ruin holy living. You're not going to live properly when you are listening to false doctrine. I got a couple of ways I want to sum that up for you that I'm putting on this screen. One is to say wrong behavior comes from listening to wrong doctrine, listening to wrong beliefs, listening to wrong standards. We listen to things that are quote unquote godly, quote unquote spiritual, quote unquote Christian, quote unquote biblical. But if they're not truly biblical, it's ruining your faith. That's the context of what he's dealing with. You're listening to people who are telling you lies about the resurrection. Don't surround yourself with them because it is corrupting you. To put it kind of fancy, immorality comes from bad theology. You believe wrong about the resurrection, you're going to live wrong. And in fact, that's what he says in verse 34. If there's no resurrection, or back to verse 32, if there's no resurrection, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It changes everything. If you have the wrong view of God and the resurrection, then that's going to ruin how you're living your life. It's going to mess it all up. You're not going to live in holiness. I submit to you very quickly, that's why we have a world that is the way it is today. Because if all there is to this life, then you better be acting like everybody else out there. You better act like an animal. You better get all you can get. You better eat, drink, and be married tomorrow we die. You better live for your happiness. And you better do all you can do right now because there's nothing more after this. But since Christ has risen from the dead, we will be raised from the dead, and therefore that changes how we live. It is a call to holy living. It demands of us to be holy in His sight and to live properly for them. So verse 34, He's just telling them it's time to wake up. Recognize something. Recognize that they're damaging your faith. Recognize being around these people are damaging your thinking. They're damaging your faith and you cannot allow that to happen, no dear Corinthian Christians. Recognize what happens. And here's the truth of how our parents use this verse to us. Evil companions corrupt good morals. Who you are around absolutely influences you. It's going to affect who you are. So don't allow these false teachers who are speaking falsely about the resurrection then distort your thinking. Don't be around them. They're ruining you. And so it doesn't merely apply to worldliness. There is a great caution that he's writing to the Corinthian church. And it's saying, you have people that are teaching falsely. And you need to watch out because they're corrupting your good morals and standards. This gives us a very important lesson, a few important lessons. But I want you to recognize one really important lesson out of this. What a church teaches is really, really important. We live in a time that says, just go to the church of your choice, go wherever you like. Paul comes along and says, you've got people who are claiming to be Christians. They're teaching falsely concerning the resurrection. They're corrupting your behavior, corrupting your thinking. Don't surround yourself with them. It matters what is being taught. It needs to come directly from the Word of God, applied properly from the Word of God. It better be exactly what God is teaching, not twisted or distorted or any such thing, because it will distort our thinking. 
And it will change our practice and lead us into sinful behavior is what he's telling the Corinthians. There's a great caution. Surround yourself with people who have a right view of the Scriptures, who carry a high view of the authority of God, who understand what God wants of them and are living that way so that your faith is not damaged. We must surround ourselves then with the right group of Christians. We must surround ourselves with a congregation where the right words are being taught. Otherwise, our faith can be shipwrecked. May no one ever believe, please, that it doesn't matter where you go. What is being taught matters. And I don't care what the sign says, what's being taught matters. It better be from the Word of God. I don't care if they act like they are or think they are or in some directory that says they are. If they're not doing what God says and they're not teaching what God says, you better get away from that because evil company corrupts good morals here, Paul says. And he's warning these Christians here in Corinth, you've got people who are denying the resurrection and that is damaging your faith. So not only does this call for teaching to come directly from God's Word and for us to rely heavily upon God's Word and to always listen and examine God's Word when the Word of God is taught, you all better always keep me on my toes. You better always be checking what I'm saying. You better make sure this says what I say that it's saying. Otherwise, you pull me aside after and say, I don't think that means what you think it means. Not only does it give us that responsibility, But then the inverse is also true. Is that good company is going to reinforce good morals. Good company is going to reinforce good morals. If people with bad theology and bad teaching and bad faith wreck my faith, then people with good theology and good teaching and good doctrine are going to support my faith. And we must recognize that. It means that we need to get together so that we can support one another, that we can uphold the Word of God to one another, that we can infuse that faith to one another and infuse that teaching to one another so that we can build our faith up properly and not lead it to a shipwreck of faith. Two great admonitions we learn from this. We need to rely exclusively on the Word of God and we need to surround ourselves with people who rely exclusively on the Word of God so that our morals will be built up by the good company we spend it with. And I want you to just consider, otherwise we're forcing Christians to be with bad company. If we're not spending time together and enforcing these good morals and enforcing this good faith and this good doctrine, then where are we going to get, get the good company from? Who's going to give us the right theology and the right teaching of God's Word? It's got to be us. There's a call to us to spend time together regularly, repeatedly, and frequently to infuse that faith, to build one another up, to ground it in the teaching of God's Word. Now, it's not just having Kool-Aid and and Cracker Jacks. It's about getting together and using the Word of God and saying, let's study the Word of God. Let's build our faith. Let's discuss what God says. Let's talk about these difficult texts. Let's talk about how we can grow our faith. We do this because good company supports good morals and bad company corrupts good morals. 
These actions then are so important because he says in verse 34, you need to wake up. Get out of your drunken stupor. What a way to say that. Isn't that kind of shocking? (laughs) You're stumbling around. You don't even understand what's going on. Wake up. Don't you see what's happening around you? Don't you see the influences and how it is ruining your faith? Don't you see what is taking place? Don't you see how your faith is being weakened? That you're losing your strength in God? Sober up. Live holy lives. And I think it is a great statement that he makes here in verse 34. And he says, Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. These are Christians. They don't know God. They think they know God. They act like they know God. Their lives show and their teaching shows and their faith shows they don't know God. Knowing God is the key to having good sense and good judgment in life. You have to know God. You have to know His teachings. You have to know His will. You have to eat, breathe, breathe and drink His Word so that you can make good decisions, so that you can stop sinning, that you can live holy lives, so that we can live in the way that God wants us to live. We know the Scriptures and we are to encourage one another then to live holy lives. It is our effort then to know God and to consider how to encourage one another, to stimulate one another, to stir one another up, to love and good deeds, as the writer of Hebrews says. How shameful it is to consider that God could say, there are people who claim to be my followers that don't know me in the slightest. It should be our hope our earnest desire because of what God has promised. He has promised that those who are in Christ, those who belong to Him, those who know Him, will be raised from the dead. The hope of everything. How could we not want to get to know God? How could we not want to find out everything about Him? To be in Christ is to have the hope of eternal life. To be in Him is the hope of resurrection. And I must do everything I can then to get to know Him and belong to Him. Let's end with this. Three thoughts. Three things that I believe the resurrection will cause out of us. The three things that we've just looked at summarized in I will statements. One, I want to be baptized. I will be baptized because I want to participate in the resurrection to come. Here Paul makes it connected. He does it in Romans chapter 6. Connects that imagery so well. Baptism is picturing resurrection. If you have not been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, you do not have hope of the resurrection. They are tied together. It is the raising out of that water to walk in newness of life. That imagery of dying to sin and raising up that offers this great hope. Your sins are washed away and you know that you will be with God. Number one, I'll be baptized because I want to participate in the resurrection. Number two, I will sacrifice my life because I want to participate in the resurrection. Being raised from the dead changes everything. No longer do I live for for today, for this year, for the next however many years I have. I live for God. I will give my body to God in the hope of the resurrection. I will live a sacrificed life for Him. Number three, Paul says, I'll wake up. I will wake up 
and live a holy life, surrounding myself with good teaching from God's Word and surrounding myself with faithful followers of God because I want to participate in the resurrection. I want to know Him and I want to have sound faith and I want to make it all the way to that eternity with Him. That's the hope. Do you have that hope? I hope you do. I hope that you in your mind can say at this very moment, I know I'll be raised from the dead and I am with Him because I belong to Jesus. Because I am living a holy life. I have given myself over to Him. I'm sacrificing for Him. I've been immersed in water for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm giving my all to Him. And you can walk out of here with great hope and great confidence. And if this has not been a picture of how you're living your life today, is the day to change that. Tomorrow may be too late. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to have this hope infused to you. That you know that you will have life because you have given everything, mind, body, soul, to Jesus Christ. And you will now live for Him. And you will submit to Him. And you will follow Him with all of your heart. We beg you to make that decision today before it's too late to find your hope in His great grace. It's because He came and died and was raised from the dead that you now, though you die, will be raised from the dead as well. Turn away from your sins. Confess Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, was raised from the dead, and see at the right hand of God and is ruling over all the earth. Submit to Him, being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?